Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. It is time for a bit of an economics lesson because of something that's been going on that um, I've been puzzled about as I've been watching interest rates go up and inflation and everything else. I want to bring in Eric Cam. He's an associate professor and the director of the International Economics and Finance Undergraduate Program at Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, Eric, thanks for doing this today. A pleasure. Okay, so we have been seeing the Bank of Canada raising and raising and raising interest rates in order to try and control inflation. Um, I know Tiff Macklin has said that he wants to get inflation down to 2%. Whether that's realistic or not is not really the question, but they are raising these rates. Let's say that the rates work, that these rate heights work, and inflation does start to come down. What then? Do we then begin to bring the rates back down or will that not just increase inflation? What do we do once we get to the point we want to be? You know, it's an excellent question because it really brings up almost a larger issue of how dynamic an economy is. I mean, we take snapshots of it to measure how it's doing, but it never stops. It never ceases. And so the Bank of Canada has a couple of different issues, and you said both of them. One is they're going to raise rates to bring down consumption and bring down investment and, in a sense, bring down imports, but that one's not as important. And in doing so, they hope to bring down spending. So now, number one, will that be followed by rates coming back down? I think the answer is yes, and I'll tell you why. I believe in history, and for about 30 years, the Bank of Canada did a wonderful job at keeping rates at approximately 2%. And we had some moderate, sometimes good, sometimes less good, but moderate economic growth. And I think that they realized that a really solid recipe for success is having interest rates low, but positive. So I do think you're going to see them come back down when they can come back down. But to your point, what happens if they go up a little bit too much and spending comes a little down a little bit too much, well, then we end up, number one, in a recession. And why do we end up in a recession? Well, as to your point about a lesson, real GDP is just the sum of all spending. So if the sum of all spending drops too far, real GDP may fall too far. That's number one. And number two, we have to worry about the one market, Scott, that hasn't been hit yet. We haven't hit the labor market. And it's probably impossible to believe all this inflation isn't eventually going to decrease employment. So here's the Bank of Canada in my long-winded explanation saying they're kind of holding on for dear life because they do want the economy to downturn, but not downturn so far as that it presents a problem. So the, the basis of this and the, the reason I have you on today, and really, I guess I, I, I should have asked this question right off the top, because what I'm really trying to understand is, is there a scenario in which we go back to normal? And by normal, I mean where we were before COVID, where interest rates were low, where inflation was not going crazy and where we were humming along just quite nicely. Is it reasonable to ever get back to that now? Or is that an impossible balance to return to? Um, I see the glass half full on this issue, and that's unlike a lot of the questions you've asked me over the last couple of years. I think we can get back to normal. I think we can get back to in and around 2% inflation. I think we can get there. And again, I drop back on history and say, well, we did it for 30 years. It just took this massive exogenous shock, this pandemic, these supply chain issues, 
a war between Russia and the Ukraine to throw us off of our balance. But I think that balance can be restored. I, I think in the long run, the economy, like all things, tries to reach equilibrium. So yeah, I think we can get back to a nice, stable state. But your question also is, is that going to happen next month? No. No. Next year? No. The year after? Probably not. I do see the glass half empty in terms of the timing proposition. I think, you hear economists say we're one or two years. I think we're four or five years away from anything resembling where we were for those 30 years of stability. So let's say that they that inflation begins, and I go back to my question, inflation begins to dip so we can then cool off on raising the interest rates again and again, maybe even drop them a little. When we drop them, though, does that not just make the inflation go back up? Why, why are the two not linked like a seesaw or a teeter-totter? They're absolutely linked that way, but there's no need to bring them down as fast as we brought them up. And I guess that's the point. And then again, I use the term equilibrium. Eventually things calm down. There's always an announcement effect. When you bring down the cost of anything, whether it's one good or a basket of goods, people tend to spend initially, and then that spending normalizes. And so I think the bank expects spending to normalize over the long run. And that's why I see such a long planning horizon. It's not going to go up. You may remember that it went up by at one time, one full percent, a hundred basis points. It will never, ever come down that fast. It'll come down in 25 um, basis point increments at most. And that's because the bank wants to avoid what you're talking about. It's going to live on a knife edge for a while, bringing down the economy, but not bringing it down too far. And then once it starts moving in that direction, not having it blow up in their face and have spending just magnificently turned to where it's been during the pandemic. The other um, part of your question is, is if you don't believe that there's going to be another massive shock like the pandemic, like the war, like the supply chain issues, then the speed in which we come down won't be as onerous as the speed in which we went up. So again, a little long winded, but I see rosy economic times ahead, but not before we see some pretty sad economic times first. All right, one more, and that is uh, you and most other economists point to the war in Ukraine as a significant factor. I mean, COVID clearly was, and the supply chain clearly was, but the war in Ukraine. If the war in Ukraine were suddenly to end, does that rapidly expedite things back to normal, or is it still a long process? If it ends and everything can get back to normal quickly, does that not mean everything would move fast? No, no. And, and I actually think of the reasons that I just gave you of these shocks. I think the war in the Ukraine and the Bank of Canada has announced that it's about the least important, uh, with all due respect to the people of Russia and the Ukraine. But in terms of economics, we're not really exposed as much as many other countries to the exports and the imports from Russia or the Ukraine. So if the war ended tomorrow, and let's hope it does, it'll free up the supply chain. It will definitely help with the free flow of goods. And that'll help with the whole price stability model. But you know, if you said to me, Eric, pick one of the three and fix it immediately, that would be the last one of the three in terms of economics that I would uh, fix. It would be the last. It'd be the ter- first in terms of, of, of human rights, but the last in terms of economics. That war affects us in what I would call a marginal fashion. Yeah. And, and I left out the, the, so we've got the interest rates that are being factored in. We've got the inflation that we're trying to balance it off. And the one thing, and you mentioned it, and it's kind of depressing, is that really 
the truth is in order to try and handle all these things, we need to have an impact on employment. Nobody wants to see anybody lose their job, but that's an inevitability, isn't it? If we're going to balance everything. It's an, it's inevitable. It's an absolute inevitability. And there's two inevitabilities that I see. They've taken the bottom out of the housing market and people think this has been severe. Uh, Scott, unfortunately, this is nothing compared to what's going to happen when these interest rate hikes make their way through the system. The majority of the people have not had to renegotiate their mortgages yet, but they're going to. And I really feel for the people today in the one to two percent mortgage rate that are going to encounter six to seven percent mortgage rates. That inevitability is coming. The labor market inevitability is coming. And that's why I said dark days ahead to hopefully be followed by some brighter times. Eric Cam, Associate Professor and the Director of the International Economics and Finance Undergraduate Program at Toronto Metropolitan University. We always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. Always a pleasure. Stay healthy, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We were going to pick up this next topic yesterday, ran out of time, but I wanted to get to it because it is, um, if you watch any sports at all, you're going to know what I'm talking about. I've been noticing over the last little while that there has been more and more and more criticism of officials. And I mean, criticism of officials goes back as long as there have been officials. But this weekend, it seemed anyway that um, with the NFL games, it seemed that we reached some kind of, I think, new point to the to the to the point where Twitter was trending. the 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 Twitter handle hashtag NFL rigged was trending because they were pointing to missed calls, blown calls, calls that weren't the same on both sides as perceived. To the point where people are thinking now that the NFL is fixing or rigging who gets to the Super Bowl. I don't believe that. But it does make me wonder, and when you look at some of these videos, you do uh, you do say that does really look like a bad call or missed call, or that particular penalty looks exactly the same as that particular play where a penalty wasn't called on the other team. It does make me wonder what's going on. Is our officials getting worse, or have we reached a point where it's simply impossible? for a human being to officiate because the speed of the game and because high definition TVs make everyone see everything that you can't see on the field. Tell you what, we're going to bring in um, a person who he is the most well-known official from this city refereed for many years in the NCAA in basketball. And he's got sons, one who referees in the CFL, one who does a whole bunch of other things. His name is Ron Foxcroft. He joins us now. Ron, how are you today? I'm doing good, Scott, and and I I want to tell you, uh, being in the officiating business my entire life, there is not a conspiracy. However, that no matter what I say or what you say, uh, you are not going to convince anybody, any fan from Cincinnati or San Francisco, that there is not a conspiracy against those two teams because of the results of what happened on this weekend. And Scott, clearly, having been in this business my entire life, every call I ever made was 50% wrong in the eyes of the fan because (laughs) in, in the eyes of the referee, there's four calls, Scott. Correct, incorrect, non call correct, non call incorrect. However, in the eyes of the fan, there's only two types of calls. Good when it goes in favor of the, their home team or bad when it goes against 
their home team. So there's there's uh, that difference. And and Scott, as I said, nobody, whatever I say tonight, nobody from Cincinnati or San Francisco is going to believe me. We are, okay. So anybody who watches sports know that athletes have good games, they have great games, and they sometimes have stinkers. That that's that is the human condition. You are some days going to be great, and you're some days going to be not great. Is there any dispute? Would there be any argument that the same could not be said for officials that you can have a bad day? Oh, you can have a bad day. Yes. Uh, let me just tell you. Uh, first things first. In in preparation for the game, referees prepare for the game. They sacrifice. They prepare. They do an intense uh, pregame. In the in the case of the NFL, those referees are dear friends of mine. In fact, this summer I uh, I would uh, had the great pleasure to introduce Ron Torbert, who worked one of the games this weekend. He's a lawyer from Maryland and just an excellent referee. In fact, I got to tell you a real quick story. His very first game in the NFL was uh, the supervisor on that game was the famous Jerry Mark Bright. He took Jerry, the NFL supervisor, back to his home after the game. And wouldn't you know, Ron Tolbert's dog bit Jerry Markbright. Now, there's a rule, you know, the supervisor of referees, don't let your dog bite him to the point where Jerry had, had to be taken to the hospital. But let me tell you, Scott, the one thing, the gut-wrenching thing about a referee in our mind, we never want to be the referee that makes an incorrect call at the end of the game that might decide the outcome of that game. Now, example, number 58 hit the quarterback for Kansas City, clearly an infraction. But you will never convince the Cincinnati fans that, A, that was a correct call. But I want to give credit to number 58 for Cincinnati. He fessed up. He said, I got to be better. And, and Scott, think about the referee that had to make that call. That was a 100% correct call, but a tough call, a gut-wrenching call, because you know and I know it put them back. It would have, if, if they didn't call that, it would have put them back 15 yards and the game winning field goal would have have to have been from the 55, 56, 58 yard line, which is a lot different than being from the 40 yard line. Now, the other thing I want to make a point, I got to give kudos to the coach for Cincinnati because obviously that call, that play did have an effect on the outcome of the game. And the announcer on the television said, what do you think about that roughing, uh, objectionable call on your player? And he said something that I thought was classy. No one play decides a game. Uh, that was classy because Scott, you know, and I know it had an effect on the game and he did not want to put his player under the bus. All right, let me ask you this, Ron, because I've I've got on my I've got Twitter up right now, and I'm looking. In fact, because of our discussion, I typed in that hashtag that's been trending: NFL rigged. Because some people are, you know, saying this just proves that the NFL got who they wanted into the Super Bowl. And there was a play earlier in the fourth quarter, yep. in which a Cincinnati player near the goal line was out of bounds. Yeah, and while he was out of bounds, he got hit. It looks very, very, very much like 
the one that was called at the end of the game on Mahomes, only this one wasn't called. So when you as an official, and I know you don't didn't do football, but you would you apply this to basketball or whatever else. When you go into the dressing room and you then watch the highlights and you see one call where one official threw a flag or called a foul and another one where it's the basically same thing and a different official didn't call it. Do both of you question your decision? You do. You do. And and let me just tell you this. They go in at halftime and they'll look at the play and they'll discuss the play. And, and you know what, uh, Scott? Officials make mistakes. They're human beings. And, and what I really respect these major leagues now, when a, there's a call that is so uh, incorrect that it, it decides the outcome of the game, the leagues have decided that the the public, the teams, everybody in the whole world deserves an explanation. And can I tell you the history of that, Scott? Back yeah. in 2002, your listeners would, would remember the Tom Brady-Tuck rule. There's just uh, been a 30 Fox for 30. Uh, yeah, there's an ESPN 30 for 30, just about that, that just played on TSN this week. Well, I was actually involved in the communication on that because it, it happened in Foxborough on a Saturday. And, and you know... Uh, it decided the game, and, and uh, the, the Tom Brady-Tuck fumble, which was not ruled a fumble for your listeners. It was ruled an incompleted pass. And famous people like uh, played for the, the Raiders, um, Ch- uh, Charles Woodson, you know, Matt Affnick named his dog after uh, Chuck uh, Charles Woodson, and, and Damon Allen's brother, Marcus, played for the the Raiders. But anyway, I was in Dallas at a National Association of Sports Officials meeting that day with Mike Pereira, who at the time was a supervisor of referees for the NFL. And and we were in the lobby of the Dallas Marriott and the commissioner of the NFL called Mike and said, get to St. Louis. There's a game in St. Louis. The public deserves an explanation for the Tuck call on Tom Brady. So that was the start, Scott, back in 2002. I, I, I can't talk specifically about calls in the NBA, but I, I must say I'm an employee of the NBA, so I can't be specific. But this weekend, the NBA went public and said in the game involving the Celtics and the Los Angeles Lakers, there was a missed call, an incorrect call, and the public deserves an explanation. So, Scott, there's no conspiracy, but there's, uh, I'll give you another example. There's, there's so much technology, there's high definition, there's slow motion, there's fast motion, there's backwards motion, and so on. On that play, the first touchdown for Philadelphia Eagles, where the player caught the ball in the six-yard line, he got up, and within 28 seconds, they uh, snapped the ball again to negate anybody challenging that play. Well, then what did they show, Scott? I think you saw it in high definition, in technology, in slow-mo, in backwards and forwards, in sideways and middle ways. They showed the ball had hit the ground and and might have been ruled an incomplete pass. However, remember, Scott, the referee is right on the play. He has a good angle, and he's doing making the call in in full speed, in in live speed, which is really really fast. We're sitting in our living room, 
at looking at it in 14 different angles, high definition, slow-mo, fast-mo, and everything that you can imagine uh, with social media and all that stuff that I, I do not understand. And we're sitting there after we watch it 17 times in slow motion, and we're making a, a decision, and it went against the team that we were cheering for, so therefore we conclude there's a conspiracy and it's a bad call. But All right. it's a gut-wrenching feel for the referee, Scott. And I just got to tell you this. I missed a call 30 years ago in triple overtime, a goaltending on a final buzzer in Kentucky. It decided the game, and I still have nightmares about that call. Gut-wrenching nightmare. Uh, so, you know, the referees, they're working hard. They're highly trained. But there has never been so much scrutiny, accountability. And I'll be honest with you, we as referees, we embrace that. We, all we want is to get the call correct. Is it possible though? And I say that because, again, I understand that refs have been scrutinized since the dawn of time, but... Yep. The athletes are bigger now. They're faster now. The bigger bodies mean you have, you know, you get blocked more because of sight lines um, is it, is it truly, is it possible for a person? Cause that's what referees are. Is it possible for a person to properly referee a game anymore and not expect to have more and more mistakes simply because of the speed? Well, the speed, the technology and, and everything, the, the accountability, is it possible? Yes, it's possible. Uh, you know, they've tried to increase the game. They've tried to improve the game. The NCAA colleges have gone to eight officials. Uh, the NBA, when I refereed, it was two officials. I made a, I missed the call in the gold medal basketball game. Adrian Dantley got a broken nose and I missed the call. There was no technology then. There was no replay. And Jim McKay from ABC simply said, the referee from Canada missed the call and the game went on. But back then, Scott, it was a two-person game. So in our case, basketball, we've gone to three officials. NCAA football have gone to eight officials. I would expect possibly the NFL and the CFL have gone to, uh, will go to eight officials. But you know the other thing, Scott? I keep hearing controversy about the referees in the, in the CFL aren't, aren't as good. I think, and I'm biased, the 40 referees in the CFL are as good as any refereeing association on the planet. They do one heck of a job. And remember, they don't have the budget or the pay that they get in the NFL. But, Scott, there's no conspiracy. Everybody's doing the, the best they can. And you ask the blunt question, is the game just too big? Are the players just too big, too fast, too skilled? Possibly. I mean, they're, they're really amazing, finely tuned athletes moving at the highest of speed. I'm not denying that it isn't a difficult thing. But Scott, in an NFL game, let's say there's 150 calls. In an NBA game, there's 150 calls. We're getting 92% of the calls correct refereeing at full speed. I, I, I've often wondered in, in recent years anyway, and I'll use hockey as an example because hockey seems to be one where this could work, I would think, quite easily. I've often wondered why they don't add a referee upstairs watching the game by TV. 
And so because it's a different view from on the ice. On the ice, you can be blocked. Up above, if it's a guy trailing the play, that a referee turns his head for a second, that that person upstairs could see it. I've often wondered why we don't. I'm not talking about everything replay. I'm talking about but someone who can see it from a very different vantage point. You know, Scott, you're a pretty smart dude. It sounds like you've done your homework. This year, there's a new system in the NFL. It's called Replay Assist. And the referee has a microphone in his ear. And every once in a while, in a very, shall we say, serious situation, there's a referee on on a uh, screen with a technology that is called the referee assist. And if something is obviously missed, and I'll go back, you remember the Los Angeles Rams, uh, New Orleans, non-call on the pass interference. If the referee, and, and you remember how serious that yep, was. Like yep, it, that, was now, it a decided now, to play off game? They, they, they simply missed the call. And I believe the NFL owners decided on this new system of referee assist. And I really believe if the system had been in place called the referee assist, they would have jumped in with their microphone to that white hat head referee and said, hey, we got to take a look at that. And he would have gone over to the screen, into the replay booth, talked to New York, and probably probably there would be a different outcome. Now, I'm, I'm not too sure of that, but Scott, um, that would be a great idea in the NHL, in, in all the major leagues, to have this uh, referee uh, looking at, at this high-definition screen from an angle up above the, 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 play, the field of play or the court or the ice, and so on and so on. And I think in the pro leagues where there's so much talent moving at high speeds and so much money, Scott, particularly now that gambling is legal, it seems, everywhere on the planet, yeah. and there's a lot of money changing hands. So I think this referee assist is, is great technology and an amazing idea because it is a very difficult thing. My sport, basketball, is, is really, really tough to referee, and, and it's almost to the point where we're considering going to four men, four, four yeah, I shouldn't yeah. say men, four officials, whether they be men or women. Okay, so I want to go back to where this whole thing started from because th- th- there were a lot of people. There are a lot of people. I mean, the, that, that NFL rigged, hashtag NFL rigged, there are tens of thousands of tweets about this. So there are clearly people who believe that something is awry. I don't. Uh, I think if there were missed calls, there's missed calls. I don't believe the league has called down to the officials and said, hey, make sure this team gets in. However, and I know you, I know this is an awkward question for you because you do work for the NBA, and I'm not going to ask you for specifics, but a number of years ago, the NBA did have an official that got himself in trouble, and we all Tim know the story Dunahee. of Tim Donahue. The fa- we're not talking about his situation per se, but how much does it hurt all officials to have that one example that people can keep going back to and say, see, it happens, see, it happens, and it almost gives credence to those who say, well, look, it does happen that things are rigged. How, how much did his story hurt every official? 
It hurt our industry, Scott. I'm really, really glad you brought that up because I know Tim Dunaghy. His father was my officiating partner. He was an amazing man, an amazing referee. But I'm going to tell you, the Tim Dunaghy story situation has done so much harm to our industry. It happened 15 or 10 or 15 years ago, and our industry is still recovering because, uh, like I say, there's people out there, no matter what you say or I say, when their team loses, they're going to come back and say there's a conspiracy. All you referees are cheaters. And, and this was the, the proof. And this the, was the, the proof. Yeah, the Dunaghy thing, you know, a lot of heads rolled over that, Scott. It was a very difficult. But you know what, Scott? There's bad apples in any industry. I'm, I mean, just because Tim Dunaghy was, was, you know, got caught and, and it was a, a, a terrible situation. But you can say that about any industry. You can say, you know, one trucker doesn't mean everybody in the trucking industry is bad. One grocery store owner, if he's bad, doesn't mean every grocery store owner is bad. You know what I mean, Scott? 100%. But, but there are certain industries, Don, where it seems to stick. Uh, when, when uh, I can't remember his name, Jason uh, something, who was a reporter for the Washington Post, made up all kinds of stories for, yep. you know, that's proof that the media is corrupt. When one yep. referee uh, accepts bets on gambling, that proves that every referee is potentially corrupt. I mean, there are certain industries where it seems to stick a lot more, and yours is one of them. Well, that was one of them because of the uh, Dunaghy situation. And I'll tell you right now, Scott, you've, you've really hit a, a sensitive thing. I went into the uh, Scotiabank Arena the other day and worked a game, and, and Toronto lost, and I, I um, left the arena to go into my car, and a couple of guys came up to me and looked me in the eyes and said, all you referees are cheaters. And Scott, no matter what, their team lost, and they think they lost because all the referees are cheaters, and we are not going to say anything on this planet that's going to change their mind. But I want you to know, Scott, there's never been more scrutiny. There's never been more challenging to try and referee. The players are bigger. They're faster. They move. There's so much technology. There's so much accountability. And believe me, the other thing, Scott, all these referees in the NFL and NBA and NHL, they are accountable. They are evaluated on every single Fox 40 whistle that they blow, and they are accountable, and they are evaluated, and every single call, there's an evaluation, whether it's correct, incorrect, non-call, or non-call incorrect. That is Ron Foxcroft, and that is uh, where I, I will bet money well, probably a bad choice of words in this case, but um, no. that when the Super Bowl rolls around, there will be those when it ends who say that it was fixed. And um, I think Don's right, or Ron's right that uh, we're not going to convince anyone otherwise. But uh, Ron, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing my, this. My dear friend Carl Cheffers is the referee, and I'll guarantee you, Scott, he will be he will do an outstanding job on the Super Bowl on February the twelfth. Ron Foxcroft, appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.